Thanks, and welcome to the Wednesday, February 28th, 2024 meeting of the Redmond Planning Commission. Call this meeting to order and start with a roll call. Commissioner Woodyear. Present. Commissioner Aparna. Present. Commissioner Van Nyman. Present. Commissioner Sheffron. Present. Vice Chair Weston. Present. And I am Chair Sherry Nichols. I also want to acknowledge uh, staff members who have extended their workday to support us tonight. Uh, joining us are Chris Wyatt, Jeff Churchill, Odra Cardenas, Becky Fry, Josh Moyler, and Ian Lefcourt. I look for a motion to approve the agenda. So moved. All in favor? Aye. Aye. And the motion, the agenda is approved. This is the point in the meeting in which we provide opportunity for public comment on any item that is not the subject of a public hearing. Uh, or in this case tonight, we also have a public meeting about a, uh, an item on the agenda. So we have no items from the audience tonight. Um, moving on then, uh, we'll move on to uh, Revin 2050 Transportation Element and Related Regulations Report Approval. This is uh, just the report approval of the, uh, the regulations and element that we previously did work on. Um, do we have a motion to approve the report? So moved. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. And the report is approved. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, next we have Ribbon 2050 Phase 2A Policies Human Services Element and Annexation and Regional Planning Element. This is also a report approval. Do we have a motion to approve the report? So moved. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. And that report is approved. Thank you. Now go to uh, council. Okay, now we will move on to item six on the agenda, Rebin 2050, SEPA infill exemptions, planning action, and Overlake neighborhood plan addendum, where we'll have a community meeting and study session. And I believe Becky will walk us through this. Hey, good evening. Um, I will go through the slide deck and then um, as Sherry mentioned, we have a community meeting this evening on the SEPA planned action. We're required to have a community meeting uh, prior to adopting any updates to the planned action. So we're holding that in conjunction with the planning uh, commission study session tonight. Um, so as soon as I'm done with the presentation, we can open it for any community comments on this item. Uh, but I'll go through the presentation first. Um, I did want to call out that this was not ready for the packet last Friday, uh, but it is online now. So anybody in the audience or online uh, has access to it through the Planning Commission materials page. Um, 
So this evening, this topic covers a number of different items. It includes a really brief overview of SEPA, um, just to bring everybody up to speed on the different types of actions and how this fits within the larger context. And then I'll go into detail on the proposed infill exemptions, uh, the update to the neighborhood planned action, and just briefly touch on the neighborhood plan addendum as well. Um, these items are implementation items. They are not brand new. So they are intended to be more of a light touch planning commission review because you've already seen all of the policies, all the details in various forms and functions. So I did want to um, let everybody know that this is uh, not necessarily new information, although some of the details of the SEPA actions will be a little bit new tonight. Um, uh, so just really quickly, what does SEPA mean? SEPA is the State Environmental Policy Act for Washington State, uh, adopted in 1971 just to identify and analyze environmental impacts. And it is a process that over time, as codes have gotten better, and as we have updated other things, we have been able to adopt through uh, state allowances different types of categorical exemptions and other types of exemptions that don't necessarily require the full review because we have better codes and we have better mitigation measures put in place. So um, a lot of the SEPA work for Redmond 2050 was completed through the environmental impact statement process. Um, we just issued our final EIS in December of 2023. All of what you see tonight is mentioned in those documents. Uh, we went in depth under the infill exemption and planned action ordinance updates in the supplemental draft in EIS and the final EIS that were published last year. These, again, are the implementation pieces. They do include the update to the Overlake Planned Action, um, three different infill exemptions, and also um, a few minor Redmond Zoning Code rewrite pieces related to SEPA processes have been up added in here as well. Um, so, again, what you're, what you're seeing tonight is a culmination of the last couple of years of work. Um, and... Uh, so what does an exemption mean? Um, the state actually has a number of different types of projects that are not required to do an individual uh, project level review. Uh, so there's statutory exemptions uh, allowed under RCW. Um, they are called out very specifically and one of those categories is an infill exemption. Uh, so what we are doing are we are implementing what is allowed um, under RCW uh, 4321C, 229 infill exemptions. The intent of the infill exemptions is to look at infill and housing in particular, how we can make those things a little bit easier. Um, I do want to point out, though, that we cannot do this um, without having incorporated it into our environmental impact statement. Um, so the reason why we put it all and we analyzed everything in the supplemental draft EIS and the final EIS was intentionally to allow us to go ahead and do these implementation pieces. So all of the required documentation uh, for the work that we're doing today, all of the legal um, steps to get this have been folded into the larger Redmond 2050 umbrella. Um, so from a documentation standpoint, it was been analyzed in those documents. 
Um, so what we have proposed and what you'll see in a future update, but I'll go through today on what bullet point version, are edits to Redmond Zoning Code Section 2170, and that's where super regulations are housed. Um, a couple of pieces from the Redmond Zoning Code rewrite that you'll see in here, we're removing his and her language. It's a part of our equity scrub. Um, and also the state has updated the thresholds for certain types of categorical exemptions. That means that they're just not subject to SEPA. And so we're just amending our category exemption section to match what is allowed um, to us under code. Um, so that's just some basic pieces that would happen with or without uh, anything else that we're doing. The Redmond 2050 pieces are implementing the update to the overlay planned action and the infill exemptions. And again, we have these three different infill exemptions. Um, the downtown one and Marymore one are ones that we intended very early on. We knew we were going to look at studying those. Um, and then early last year, the state amended the code to allow a different type of infill exemption that we're going to be using for our citywide infill exemption. Um, one thing to point out is these are different geographies. They do not overlap. Um, so if you are in the Overlake Planned Action, you are in that SEPA process. If you are in downtown Emory or more, you're under those specific processes. Um, there is no overlap. And if so, citywide in this context does not mean it applies to the centers. It's everything else. Um, it's just a catch-all term. Just want to make sure everybody knows that they're not overlapping. Okay, so um, the two changes that we're doing to revise the categorical exemptions are allowed under this section of WAC. Uh, the first one is the state now allows us to have an exemption for smaller housing. So any housing of under uh, 1,500 square feet up to 100 units at a time um, can go through at a single family uh, for category exemption. So if you have a small subdivision of really small units, um, then you're categorically exempt. So uh, this would not require an infill exemption or planned action. This is just a category exemption. It's on its own. And then also the state updated multifamily structure counts, uh, which would qualify for a category exemption. And um, they raised it from 60 to 200. So we're matching that. We're going to just raise it. So both of these are um, fairly recent adjustments, not totally new, uh, but fairly recent changes in state law. And again, this, the intention is just to match the existing state law for category exemptions. These will be in place even if at some point in time we decide to expire the infill exemptions, the categorical exemptions stand alone. So what we are doing then is adding these infill and housing exemptions that are allowed um, in RCW. There's two different sections that we're referencing, all within 4321C229, but different paragraphs. Um, the first one is what we had always planned on studying for downtown in Marymore, and that covers all residential development, mixed-use development, and commercial development up to 65,000 square feet. Um, so 
the infill exemption covers development that fits those definitions. Um, and then the other type of exemption is the one that was just adopted last year. It's the brand new, and it is the allowance for any and all housing, uh, one or more units. Um, it covers single family, missing middle, multifamily, anything, uh, could be exempt under that infill exemption. Um, and so what we are proposing for the citywide infill exemption is to reference both of those categories. Um, and uh, for our mixed-use zones, reference the residential mixed-use and commercial exemption. And then for our residential zones, which is our neighborhood residential and neighborhood multifamily, they will be under uh, the other one, which is just one or more housing units. It doesn't involve mixed-use or commercial. Um, and so the, there's different points in the code that we're referencing. Um, there's a couple of other things that we've identified. Typically for infill exemptions, you wouldn't need mitigation, but because of the things that we have identified as city priorities and things that have come up through our research, we have identified a couple of things that we do want to have there as mitigation, uh, even though we do have infill exemptions. Um, critical aquifer recharge areas, uh, temporary construction dewatering, some wastewater improvements and regional stormwater improvements. Um, so we've identified if they're applicable to downtown or Marymore, most, you know, three out of the four of these are applicable to both. Um, so what this does is it takes our preferred alternative and it analyzes the growth that we had for this planning period, which is a reminder the planning period started in 2019. Um, so it takes all growth from 2019 to 2050 and it breaks it down into different categories and says, okay, anything up to what we've studied, we've identified what the mitigation is needed. We have identified the system improvements. Um, and so because of that and because of our existing code and the changes that we're just adopting as a part of Revenue 2050, anything that meets these thresholds up to and including this amount would be covered. And then we would need to decide if at some point we want to just expire them or renew them, um, update them. We would just come up with something similar to what we're doing with the planned action, right? So if during the next periodic review cycle for the comprehensive plan, we decide to re-up the infill exemptions, we would just update the numbers and do similar analysis to make sure that we've updated the mitigation and we're still in compliance with state law at that time. Um, because our SEPA document and our preferred alternative looked at housing and jobs, because that's how it's allocated from a regional planning perspective, um, we are converting jobs to square foot, uh, which is what we've done under the planned action. And so these numbers will be converted to square foot. Um, I have a little bit of math to do because we have a certain uh, distinction between retail and office jobs from industry and manufacturing jobs, right? So we're going to go back to the preferred alternative and figure out what was assigned in each of these areas, and we'll do the total number based off the preferred alternative. Um, it just, again, to be super clear, this is all growth that occurs from 2019 up. It's just, gonna, it's just a, a, a ticker. We'll just count it down, um, and then when we get to the end of it, the infill exemption will expire if we don't re-up it or renew it, but the category exemption will still apply. Um, and so that will always be in place. This is just for things that don't qualify um, under the category exemption. 
Uh, I do want to also call out one thing. Um, in the preferred alternative in the Marymore Design District, we identified that we will allow development to go up to 12 stories, but we didn't assign that growth in the preferred alternative. Uh, we left it open um, to something that under the um, TOD focus area, it, you could build through the incentive program up to 12 stories. But uh, if you want to go above what's currently allowed today and above the growth that we did, you will need a project level SEPA to analyze what we didn't analyze during the FEIS. So it just makes sure that you can do it. You're allowed to do that, um, but we will need to make sure that whatever mitigation is needed to accommodate that level of growth is just analyzed and addressed. Um, it is consistent with what's today. Um, if you have a project level going into Marymore today, no matter what size it is, you'd have to do a project level CBUS. So it's not adding anything. It's just saying that if you are under six stories, you can go under the infill exemption. So for the planned action ordinance, um, we do a planned action ordinance in conjunction with a comprehensive plan or sub-area plan. In our case, it's both. Uh, we have our comprehensive plan in general, and we have our Overlake neighborhood plan. Uh, we are doing an addendum. Um, we, it has to get recertified uh, because they are uh, it's a regional center, so we have to go for certification. Um, we are making a lot of changes. So we know we expanded the boundary. Um, we're changing a number of things that are happening within the center. One of the things that we're also doing is with the change, we eliminated sub areas and we simplified things down. And we tried to do a lot of things just based on are you in the center or out of the center? Um, and currently the planned action is based on zoning districts. Um, and we moved away from that. We did have a lot of community comment and feedback and we went back and forth on that decision. Um, and we ended up sticking with the simplification of if you're in the center, certain things apply. And if you're outside the center, it doesn't. And that applied also to the planned action ordinance. Um, so it is a different boundary than what's in there today. And I'll talk a little bit more that on, I think the next slide. Um, we do have to do a more detailed area-wide environmental review, detailed mitigation. Applied action is way more involved than an infill exemption would be. It requires a lot more work, a lot more specificity. Um, but it is similar in that it tackles the environmental impact on an uh, area-wide level instead of having to it's have to come in on a project-by-project project, uh, basis, which is much more effective. It allows us to address things at a, a much bigger level and a more comprehensive level. So it is definitely a, a better approach to take. Um, we are updating the maximum thresholds to add in a growth via the preferred alternative. Uh, so adding in that extra 10,000 housing units and 15,000 jobs. Um, it is just matching the growth, though. It is um, a one-for-one -one to what we put into a preferred alternative. So what happens to the area that will no longer be in the planned action certification area, right? Um, so there is an area that is currently within the Overlake Business and Advanced Technology Zoning District um, that was subject to the current planned action, but it will not be under the new planned action moving forward. So what we have done is we have put in the code for um, whatever's left 
of the current planned action, we will reserve it for those areas that will no longer be under the new planned action and we'll, we'll allow it to be accessible to that area until it expires. So we're not removing it. Um, it's going to be reserved. So uh, if you're currently allowed to do that until 2030, you'll continue to be allowed to do that until 2030. Um, so just want to make that clear as well. Once it does expire, if there is anything left over unused, it would just go back into the larger bucket, um, but it would fall back under the, if you're in the center. Um, so with that, we're proposing updates not only to 2170, but a brand new Appendix 11. Um, that's because we're updating the mitigation measures and the information, the processes. Uh, we just wanted to be a little bit more detailed, but not necessarily clog up the actual Redmond Zoning Code section with all of this detail. Um, and so we're proposing a new Appendix 11. It'll cover the applicability. Uh, it'll cover the what happens to the the leftovers from the 2030 um, it'll cover the very specific requirements there's a, a proposed checklist in there of information that a developer would have to submit so that it helps a developer who's looking to see uh, on the planned action what they need to do for their submittal and, and then it outlines mitigation measures and performance standards and we've tried to make it really simple we've uh, identified them with symbols here a mitigation measure is something new or above our current code that is needed. Again, it is something that was identified through the EIS process. Um, and then we've, in the back of it, we have an area where it is existing regulations serving as mitigation measures. So if somebody wanted to see from beginning to end how we're accommodating growth in this area, they see the things that are under the current code that help us accommodate growth and then the additional work that we're doing through the mitigation measures. So uh, there's a lot of information in that. You'll see that in the next iteration of a packet. Um, just a really, really high-level look at what the mitigation measures would be for Overlake. Um, again, these are above and beyond current code, so there's a lot of things in current code. Um, what this is, it just uh, takes it up a, a little bit of a notch. In some cases, it's just adding a lot more specificity. Um, and so we have a couple of things here. You'll see earth, water, and plants and animals. Um, one of the things I do want to point out is, as a part of the work that we did for the EIS, uh, we did a climate vulnerability assessment, right? So one of the things that we're doing with the mitigation measures is tying back to that assessment and making sure that the actions and um, things that were identified in that assessment is now pulled forward into mitigation measures. So we promised it wasn't just day one and done, it goes on a shelf and we don't touch it anymore, we pulled it into our processes. This is one example of how that's happening. We're referencing back to that climate vulnerability assessment for some of the mitigation measures where it makes sense. Um, some of the other things here, uh, low impact development, um, there's a couple of other things in here. Definitely a lot going on on transportation. Uh, you'll see in 
the draft neighborhood plan addendum, one of the appendices is the list of overlake-related transportation projects, and it's pages and pages and pages of lists of projects that will be needed to accommodate growth. So it's just making sure that all of those things will need to get put into play, um, and many of them are called out as developer contributions for as projects get developed. There's a couple of things in here that are a little different on public facilities for fire and police. Um, one of the things that... Um, fire has called out is making sure that we do have um contributions or some type of analysis on the impact of not just the stations but the equipment like are we going to have the right uh, ladder trucks are we going to have additional staffing needs that type of thing so these are some mitigation measures that are a little bit unusual uh, but are needed to actually accommodate the level of growth um, and a couple more here for stormwater and water and sewer. So there's definitely, we've identified um, where the pipes need to be upsized and that type of thing. So we're just calling that out for those specific actions that will be needed. So uh, the neighborhood plan addendum, I provided a draft 1.0 in, in your packet. Um, I do want to call out that it is going to be, it's a sub-area plan essentially. Um, again, I mentioned earlier, it is required to go through certification as a, a center update. Um, and so there's a lot of things that had to get put together in this document. Uh, I do want to point out we don't have any new policies or mitigations. You don't need to review this document in the same way you would an element because you've already reviewed the content um, just in different formats and different uh, sections. So what we've done is we've taken information from the comp plan, the transportation master plan, the stuff that we did for water and sewer and all of those other things and we just pulled anything related to Overlake into that document and then um, for this draft um, I've added in gray above each section what the certification requirements are. Um, so you can see we're just addressing the certification. We're not doing anything above and beyond what's required for certification in this addendum uh, because we've already revisioned and we've already identified so we don't need to redo the visioning for overlake at all we're just documenting it in um, one complete spot uh, so we can go through the certification um, so there's some additional level of detail uh, from what you have reviewed because if we had citywide stats now we need centerwide stats uh, but it's not changing the modeling the modeling is the exact same so I just wanted to uh, make that clear. So again, the level of review required on this is not the same. We're not re-editing any of the policies. They've already been through review and recommendation through other processes. So, um, so that is my presentation. There's a lot of information. Um, again, that we can go into in detail. We will have future uh, study sessions and updates, and I do want to also point out that we had originally thought uh, we'd be able to get this through into a public hearing next month. We have rescheduled that public hearing to April 10th, um, so we've we've made a note of that as well in your packet um, and on the Overlake Updates website as well. But I will hand it over to the chair for uh, questions and public comments. Okay, um, then I will open it for the community meeting, and I believe we have uh, Mr. Morton signed up for that. First up is David M. That doesn't sound like it. It was earlier. Uh, Chris, 
Sorry, what's the problem? The microphone at the... Oh, there it is. Sorry about that. Good. Good evening, Commissioners. I'm David Morton, 19934 Northeast Union Hill Road, Redmond, 98053. Redmond's Overlake planned action was first established in 1999 by an ordinance which expired in 2012 and has been superseded by other ordinances. But first, what is planned action? The planned action projects for local governments in Washington State under the State Environmental Policy Act, or SEPA, have a specific purpose and meaning. A planned action is a development project whose impacts have been addressed by an environmental impact statement, or EIS, associated with a plan for a specific geographic area before individual projects are proposed. A pl planned action involves detailed SEPA review and preparation of EIS documents in conjunction with sub-area plans. An upfront analysis of impacts and mitigation measures then enables environmental review of subsequent individual development projects. The environmental impacts of high-density urbanization in Overlake have been analyzed and Redmond is committed to addressing them. Let's delve into potential mitigation measures that could prevent, reduce, or control the adverse environmental effects associated with urbanization in Overlake. First, green infrastructure implementation integrating green spaces, parks, and urban forests into the fabric of Overlake can mitigate the loss of natural habitats due to urbanization. Incorporating green infrastructure helps manage stormwater, improve air quality, and provide recreational spaces, contributing to overall environmental health. Second, promoting transit Transit-Oriented Development, or TOD, strategies encourages a shift towards public transportation and reduces reliance on individual vehicles. This not only eases traffic congestion, but also minimizes the carbon footprint and air pollution caused by urbanization. Third, implementing and enforcing stringent, energy-efficient building codes can mitigate the environmental effects of high-density construction. This includes promoting sustainable construction practices, using energy-efficient materials, and incorporating renewable energy. See the link for energy optimization in high-rise buildings. Fourth, waste reduction and recycling programs. As urbanization increases, so does the generation of waste. Um, uh, period. Implementing comprehensive waste reduction and recycling programs can minimize the environmental impact of increased urban activity. This includes encouraging the use of recycled materials in construction and fostering a culture of responsible waste management among residents and businesses. Fifth, biodiversity conservation. Preserving and enhancing biodiversity within Overlake is crucial for maintaining ecological balance. Establishing green corridors, wildlife habitats, and protected areas can mitigate the fragmentation of natural habitats caused by urban development. Sixth, community engagement and education. Engaging the local community in environmental stewardship through education programs can foster a sense of responsibility. Informed residents are more likely to adopt sustainable practices, participate in conservation efforts, and support initiatives that mitigate the environmental impact of urbanization. 
7th. Employing smart infrastructure planning involves integrating technology to optimize resource use. This includes smart grid systems, efficient waste management technologies, and intelligent transportation systems to minimize environmental stressors associated with urbanization. And finally, adaptive design for climate resilience. Considering the potential impacts of climate change, incorporating adaptive design principles in urban planning can ensure that Overlake is resilient to environmental changes. This may involve elevating structures to mitigate flooding risks, designing for extreme weather events, and utilizing sustainable and resilient construction materials. By adopting a holistic approach that combines green infrastructure, sustainable development practices, community engagement, and forward-thinking planning, Overlake can effectively mitigate the adverse environmental effects of urbanization, ensuring a resilient and sustainable future for the community. Thank you. Thank you. And we have no one else signed up to speak. So uh, at this point, I'll open it up for Commissioner questions. Does anyone have a question? Commissioner Weston. Hey, um, so I um, am not sure that this is covered here, but I wanted to ask about the citywide exemption, um, specifically hazard areas. So floodplains or landslide, is that covered in this document or somewhere else? The only place I found it was yeah. in the vulnerable communities section. So our existing regulations apply. Um, and one of the things that is a criteria for infill exemptions is that you have to have uh, all of those things covered under your existing code. Um, and so, yes, so if there is an area within the city that you can't develop or there's a lot of criteria around it because it's in some type of critical area, um, including geological hazard areas, then our current code will regulate that growth. So the infill exemption doesn't say that you can just do anything anywhere, um, it, but it says that you don't have to go through a project level SEPA because our existing code addresses all of those areas of concern that would happen that um, would be looked at under a project level review. Okay, that's amazing. Thank you. Commissioner Parna. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Becky. I uh, just had a question about the mitigation measures. So first question is, are all infill projects required to put out a mitigation plan? And when is that implementation required? Is it at the beginning to make sure, like, depending on what mitigation it is, is it supposed to be yeah. done before, during, or after? So what would happen is that a typical infill exemption would not have mitigation measures. We've adopted a couple of things that we want to keep a better eye on. Um, and so these things would just be reviewed at application. Um, so they would just make sure that as they come in, these things are addressed in the, the, the way that it's been called out here. Okay. So, um, so these are right now it's showing up only as downtown and Marymore, right? So, but what if there's a slope in, in one of the other areas, right? Um, I mean, a geological hazard or whatever, right? Uh, so, well, yeah. 
again, our, our current code addresses all of that. So okay. if there's a development proposal that comes in on a steep slope or in a wetland area or whatever, the existing regulations and restrictions still apply. You would okay. have to comply with all the new code. These are just things that are above and beyond that we would want to make sure that in these particular areas we have a couple of things that we want to make sure don't happen under the infill exemption. Okay, and the timing of these mitigation, um, are they plans which they have to submit and then uh, finish up by the time of construction or is it something that they have to kind of have a little more in place before they come to you, like as a process question? All of these are just information that would be provided at the time of application. Okay. Um, so the critical aquifer recharge area, it just says that um, you'll provide a hydrologic assessment that's with your application, right? Mm -hmm. um, the dewatering, if you're proposing a temporary construction dewatering, um, that's not what we want in those areas. So it would definitely exclude you from the infill exemption coverage, right? Right. Um, wastewater just means you have to show that you um, have utility availability. Uh, this is one that is in particular of concern in downtown uh, because the pipe right. uh, upgrades that are needed and the uh, pump stations. So right. that's just calling out and making sure that we're once we get to a point, or if we do get to a point where we haven't upgraded the system yet mm -hmm. um, to match the level of growth, we don't let them go through under an infill exemption. We say, look, you still do, even if you've got an infill exemption, you still do have to have the utility availability. Um, and so that just makes sure that the system upgrades are concurrent with the growth proposed. Um, and then the stormwater capacity is just, again, making sure that we're, we're in compliance with regional facilities uh, where there's capacity. So none of these are things that would be a massive investment that would take a long time before a project could come in, if that makes sense. The right. one that could potentially cause some hiccups would be um, the the wastewater in downtown, most likely. Um, and that's just if the infrastructure just isn't in place in time. But we've got right. a lot of growth that can happen before that, and there's a lot of study that's happening on when exactly that would be needed and the funding required and, and what the plans would be. So... Um, all of this would just be information that would be provided at time of application. Thank you. That that's very helpful. Commissioner Wesson. I have another question about when Appendix Eleven is going to show up. Um, is that just the Overlake piece that we'll be seeing next time, or is that all of it? Yeah, Appendix 11 is the Overlake mitigation, so it's all about the planned action, um, and you will see it, that in your next, um, I believe I'm on your next agenda, so you'll see that draft in your next packet. Okay. And you'll see the draft of 2170 in your next packet as well. Okay, and then the citywide exception, does that have a similar appendix? No, because that is just these, those four items and so it's just called out in 2170 okay in that case there's I'd... a lot oh sorry go ahead 
there's a lot more mitigation required under the planned action than under the infill exemption. Um, but since we only have those four items for the infill exemptions, it is just in 2170 edits. Uh, it doesn't need to go anywhere else. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a couple of questions um, or clarifications. Um, on the infill thresholds, um, are those numbers for development of infill or overall development? Overall development. Okay. Um, and the other one I just wanted to be clear on with the planned action. So basically the planned action is the city doing the SEPA process for the entire area so that developers will not have to do SEPA so that will be a time slash cost savings and much more predictability for developers, correct? Yes. The difference between an infill exemption is that infill exemptions are considered categorical exemptions under state law. Uh -huh. So the planned action is the city doing the SEPA work. Right. So, and this is basically for the same area where we just talked about increasing the inclusionary zoning. Correct. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. Any other questions? Commissioner Wesson. Um, so I actually, I have a lot more confidence on the Overlake because we've seen it recently. I had one more question about the citywide exemption. How does that try, tie into the tree code when you have a lot that is currently developed but still has a lot of trees and then gets subdivided? So the tree code will still be in effect, right? So the infill exemption just means you don't have to do a project level SEPA. Um, and so if there is a tree code that affects that property, the tree code would still apply. Um, there are some challenges with the new state law saying, hey, you can have six dwelling units and two ADUs on every lot and how what that means. Um, the underlying code regulating those trees and setbacks and uh, wetlands and all of those things, though, will still impact where on the lot you could do it. And so it will impact what type of uh, structure you could potentially place on it or maybe even limit the number of units just because you can't place that many units with the environmental restrictions on the property but the environmental restrictions on the property will still be in place okay thank you so it doesn't it doesn't remove environmental restrictions it just removes the process of SEPA from the project yes and then once the infill exemption goes away, then they would just need a threshold determination on, so if they're categorically exempt or if they're a uh, determination of non-significance or if they need something a little bit more significant. Um, so. Again, the requirement for the infill exemption is you proving that your code covers your environmental concerns. And so all of those definitely need to be updated and in place the way that they need to be. And so that's a lot of the work that we're doing in Redmond 2050 is updating best available science, et cetera. And so those codes are being updated. Okay. 
Okay, that makes so much sense. And then last question on this. Um, so for the citywide exemption, um, specifically for the wastewater, um, does it make sense to actually have a mitigation there? Because um, I'm just thinking like some of the neighborhoods, the pipes are limited to a size that if you actually started really adding in a lot of housing there, like the 7,000 might not cover the upgrades that are needed? Um, I will double check back with Public Works, but that wasn't an identified mitigation that they felt was needed. Uh, but I will, I'll double check with them. I remember it coming up during the wastewater plan discussion. So it seems like it might be, and then just also like, um, it seems like the infill will be limited to certain areas that don't have HOAs sometimes. Um, so you might get areas that are really disproportionately affected. Yeah, so that's a really good point. The infill exemption really doesn't have an impact on where growth will go, right? It's just, it's just a process exception. Um, where growth will go under the new regulations, all the stuff that we're looking at to, to change the new code, uh, there will be natural limitations just because the city is one entity, but there's also uh, CCNRs that are governed by HOAs that will also limit certain types of subdivisions. There's also a platting process that will limit the ability for some neighborhoods to add additional units. So there will be other things that govern where growth will go, um, but the infill exemptions don't touch on anything that's related to where growth goes. It literally is just a process piece. It saves time and money for a developer. Yeah, I, that makes total sense. I just, the wastewater piece, like the description of what was happening downtown seems similar to what could happen in a different way in the less dense neighborhoods. Wasn't identified as a need during the modeling that we did for the um, supplemental draft in the final EIS. Um, they are undergoing an update to that functional plan. If anything new comes out of that, um, I'll, I can check in with them and see if there's some additional information that might have flagged a need for a mitigation measure. But when we did the modeling for the citywide distribution of growth, it wasn't flagged as something that we would need to do. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Okay, thanks, Becky. So I'll be back at the next meeting. Um, we'll have the drafts of 2170 and Appendix 11. And so you can actually go through the, the code updates uh, uh, proposed at that time. And if you have any questions on the neighborhood plan addendum, uh, please do let me know. Uh, again, it's, it's just an assembly of already known information though. So hopefully there's not a lot of uh, things that are confusing in there. <laughs> okay, so now we'll move on to Redmond 2050 Residential Regulations Study Session and Ian and Odra. All right, my name is Ian Lefcourt. I use he, him pronouns and I'm joined by 
Hello, my name is Eldra Cárdenas, she, her uh, pronouns. And we're here to talk about residential regulations, if teams will allow me to share my screen. Okay, so here's the agenda we're proposing tonight. We're going to talk about the zoning consolidation generally for our residential. We're going to talk about individually the neighborhood residential and then the neighborhood multifamily. Those are two different zoning districts. Briefly touch on the update to definitions and then close out with our zoning map amendment. Now, there are a lot of slides tonight. Uh, so staff's proposal is that we'll go through it at a high level and the ask to planning commissioners is that you jot down your questions, reactions, basically anything you're curious about and staff will aggregate that into an issues matrix and then at the following meeting, we can kind of dive deeper and have a more of a discussion. I'm sorry, Ian, so you're saying do not provide feedback verbally, just in, in writing? I am saying please proactively provide feedback. It's just uh, staff likely won't get into conversations tonight. We're just going to jot it down so we can make an issues matrix. Thank you for the clarity. Uh, so here we see kind of the, the foundation of our zoning consolidation. We've got those existing three different land use designations in the currently adopted comprehensive plan. Single family constrained, single family urban, multifamily urban, and with them, you know, about a dozen consistent zoning districts. The proposal is we're going to get one land use designation and then three zoning districts. Tonight, we're only talking about two of them, neighborhood residential and neighborhood multifamily. The reason we're not discussing neighborhood mixed use is because that is part of the broader mixed use discussion and analysis that is going on for the other citywide mixed use uh, zoning districts. And importantly, this also means that neighborhood residential and neighborhood multifamily do not yet have finalized use tables. Those use tables that were included as part of the technical committee report, kind of a, a, a bridge table. It doesn't actually represent um, permanent amendments. Uh, the complete neighborhoods will require uh, more non-residential uses to be identified in those tables because as we remember, our, our kind of direction here was that we'd have a continuum, right? Neighborhood residential, neighborhood multifamily, neighborhood mixed use would all generally have similar non-residential uses. There'd be some increase in the quantity as you go from residential to mixed use, and there would also be an increase uh, in kind of in intensity. The new uh, zoning districts, we've got neighborhood residential. We're consolidating R1 through R8, compliance with a bunch of different state laws. Uh, and actually, legislature just kind of wrapped up again. So we've got to double check that we'll be compliant with all of those as well. Importantly, we're getting that middle housing and we're implementing our housing action plan. 
This has more amendments than our neighborhood multifamily, which is consolidating R12 through R30. Those amendments really are updating the neighborhood multifamily to be roughly R30 of today. Oh, we now. When we gave you our technical committee report, there were over 200 pages of redlined amendments. Most of those are actually rather straightforward because a lot of it is, like on this slide, simply deleting and replacing. These are all the existing sections for uh, the zoning districts which are proposed to be deleted and replaced. And many of these updates are relatively straightforward as well. Those first four sections, attached dwelling units, cottage housing developments, critical areas residential density bonus, and the residential innovative zone, largely deleted, but relevant pieces of it have been plucked and integrated into other pieces of this amendment package to ensure the code uh, retains those important pieces and keeps a streamlined, consistent approach. Many of those other updates, relatively minor for many of them, um, such as, uh, right, the code will reference one of those zoning districts we're proposing to delete. So the code will say something, something, R4. And so our amendment is simply changing that R4 to be an R for neighborhood residential. Um, there are some other pieces. Accessory dwelling units uh, actually had some substantive updates. We'll, we'll touch on that later. Um, but generally, pretty straightforward changes. Here are some more chapters. Um, again, these are relatively straightforward in terms of clarity, or they are focused on things like um, ensuring the updated language is reflected in the processes so that the actual implementation of the middle housing could occur. Now, there's two chapters we do want to draw your attention to here. The first is 2120, affordable housing. This is where our affordable housing requirements reside. In your amendment package with the technical committee report, currently there is placeholder text for some of the affordability requirements for neighborhood residential. So by that we mean there's, there's literally like variables in place where it's talking about the set-asides and the AMI levels and such. The reason for that is we have a multi-jurisdiction feasibility analysis going on with consultants, a regional coalition for housing, and a splish splash of commerce support to really take a look at the variety of economic considerations that comes from middle housing. It's a bit trickier than some of our other financial analyses because, well, City of Redmond has enjoyed robust development of five over one in our centers. So we had a lot of opportunities to have stakeholders there and learn from those lived uh, experiences. With middle housing, it's a lot harder to find robustly produced uh, developers for our region. And importantly, not all middle housing is the same. A cottage development is not the same as townhomes. Townhomes aren't the same as stacked flats. So there's special considerations and costs. So all of that is to say the placeholders in 2120 will be updated as we have more concrete uh, outputs from that modeling. The other chapter we wanna look at is 2145, solid waste storage and collection. This is a new section, although it's largely already existing code that was kind of scooched out into its own new uh, chapter. And the Planning Commission previously reviewed this. 
this was part of the Overlake code package. Um, so all of the red, red lines are actually previously reviewed text. There's one little piece of blue red lines in that chapter, which is the amendments proposed as part of this package. Um, we included all of it because it's a new chapter, and so we wanted you to be able to have the whole context. And here is this zoning map, kind of the, the actuating component of it. We've got our neighborhood residential in that kind of light peach. We've got the neighborhood multifamily in that tangerine. And you'll also notice we have our overlake consolidation here as well. That's because uh, the, the actual amended zoning map just didn't make it into your overlake package. There's no substantive difference. It's the exact same recommendation. It's just here it's actually uh, codified into the map. Now importantly, we also are proposing zoning updates to the pre-annexation pre zoning for the potential annexation areas. That actually doesn't change anything now, but if it is annexed at a later time, that's the zoning that they will come into the city with. So let's talk about what's staying the same, what's changing for neighborhood residential specifically. Well, we've already touched on the zone of consolidation, but that second point under significant changes is, well, it's a shift not only in the zone here, but kind of in a paradigm of housing generally across our state. State legislation says that we have to measure these specific middle housing requirements in terms of dwelling units per lot. Now, conventionally, residential zoning is measured in dwelling units per acre. As you can imagine, that's where a lot of those 200 pages came from, is making sure that everything aligned with that new measuring paradigm. Now, that third point, allowing up to eight homes per lot, that is assuming the affordability component is fulfilled. The residential, uh, the neighborhood residential gives six dwelling units per lot baseline. And if those affordability requirements are met, then they can go up to eight per lot. The fourth point is honestly where a lot of the, the outcomes of this work will hopefully come from. And that's making the review process for middle housing the same as single family detached homes. And uh, we will allow some commercial uses to support complete neighborhoods. Staying the same is basically almost everything else. I mean, it's got the same zoning code structure. We, we streamlined it a bit. The zoning district will still allow detached single family homes. Uh, the public benefit is required to get those higher densities. And the, the, there will still be design standards. They're just, generally they are three types of amendments. One, we're reducing the overall quantity of design standards needed to uh, fulfill application approval. Two, generally of those quantity of design standards, the uh, intensity of them is reduced. So as a silly example, it would be like if we all got together and we wanted to, uh, I don't know, make a pizza place and one of the design standards was, well, you have to have a golden escalator, right? And we changed that to just, well, you just need an escalator, right? The intensity and burden of it and cost of it is reduced. And here's a guardrail that we've added in terms of development capacity constraints. 
we are proposing that the maximum square footage for all the structures, the sum of them, is proportioned by the number of dwelling units on the lot. So if you have one dwelling unit, a classic detached single family home, you can have 4,500 square feet maximum. If you have four, then you can have 9,000 square feet. It is important to remember this is an allowance of maximum, but it does not actually guarantee that that much could be realized on a given lot because all the other site constraints still apply. Maximum building height, setbacks, lot coverages percent, and so forth. So on each specific lot, it's, it will vary. The consolidation for this zone, remember, goes all the way from R1 up to R8. So there's a decent spread of lot sizes that are represented. And we wanted to put this cap on there because there are rare, but more than zero, some big lots out there. And if we did not have this constraint on there, then just a giant superstructure could exist, right? We also believe this has the added benefit of, because of those restraints, it incentivizes dividing those big lots into fewer but smaller lots, which then could increase the net capacity of dwelling units in the same given area. So we feel like this is, it's a nice guardrail to preserve the kind of scope, scale, and intensity of residential neighborhoods, while also making sure that uh, there's a, a kind of an incentive to producing even more housing. The ADU changes uh, largely focused on complying with new state law. Um, you must allow two per lot. The ADUs do count towards the max units per lot in neighborhood residential. Um, we have to, by state law, remove ownership provisions. So generally that means, right, uh, there'd be something like the owner has to reside in one of the structures for X months of the year, things like that. No more under state law. Uh, we're allowing split sales, and the maximum square footage is 1,000 square feet. That's the proposed size. The design standards have been streamlined both in terms of their substance and in terms of the code itself. So there were some, in my opinion, odd organization of different pieces of code, and we've now moved design standards from the individual uh, zoning districts into just the design standard section itself. The design standards, streamlining, removing barriers, focusing on equity and middle housing. Um, and that last point, precision in language to improve clarity and development project review, that was a robust analysis to make sure that everything that was required is not subjective. So generally clear, consistent language, measurable components and other objective components. And to discuss uh, neighborhood multifamily is Odra. Thank you, Ian. So for the neighborhood multifamily, of course, the significant changes is um, consolidating from R12, R18, R20, and R30 into one, which is the big, big neighborhood multifamily. And the regulations are um, based on our theories or they're more we're like upzoning from our from the lower ones to our 30. and another significant change is that we are not going to use dwelling units per acre but we're going to be um 
Density is going to be measured in flow area ratio, which is um, total flow area divided by the parcel size or site area. So that's the way it works now. And it gives a little more flexibility on basically the box where the developer can place the, the building, right? It still has setbacks and uh, height regulations uh, based on R30, but we, we are changing that a little bit to also be consistent with other zones uh, where um, like downtown uses FAR. So we're trying to be consistent so we don't have different measurements for each zone. And, oh, and yeah, and we're also allowing commercial uses. So we support support complete neighborhoods. But this is, as Ian was mentioning, we're going to bring this conversations, conversation later on when, when, we, when we touch the neighborhood uh, mixed use and all the mixed uses. Oh, we also added some definitions uh, like middle housing types and we changed some um, we some of uh, the definition in the multifamily structure, which you can see here and read more about it. And can you go to the next slide, Ian? Uh, this is, yeah, the way it looks like the zones, for example, neighborhood uh, residential, uh, the maximum building height, you can see the comparison on from R4 and R8 and the lot coverage. So now it's basically 50% lot, co lot coverage for neighborhood residential and 38 feet for maximum building height, which would uh, basically make the middle housing um, be the same, keep the same feeling of the neighborhood. So we don't have like higher structures or more coverage than the other. So it basically fits in to the neighborhood. And the multifamily, as you can see, uh, we took like the highest which is neighborhood uh, um, R30 and use that as the base. So that's why it looks like 60 feet and 60% not coverage for the structures. And these are the proposed uh, proposed zoning map amendments. So Overlake, we went from Overlake Village, which was from one to five to just one, um, one zone. And OBAD stays the same. And then we also added the Overlake Urban Multifamily, which is the pink in the north part of Overlake Center. For the potential annexation areas, uh, we are going to amend what we have right now, which is goes from R1 to R6 to just go to neighborhood residential. Um, and also we are going to adapt the zoning, the pre-annexation zoning, because uh, especially in English Hill, which is in the north part, we didn't have any uh, adopted any uh, pre-annexation zone there. And for the residential, of course, including R1 to, through R8 into neighborhood residential and R12 to R30 into neighborhood multifamily, as you can see, like the two colors in there. So this streamlines the, the map, too. So it's easier uh, for permits and everything to just have all those consolidated. And here you see, like, for example, the the potential annexation areas. This is what it's already adopted. So we want to adopt the rest. The, the north part of English Hill to also have neighborhood multifamily. And you can see like the big pink, uh, sorry, yellow areas for neighborhood residential and the brown for uh, neighborhood multifamily. That's the way like separated. That's how they look right now. And Ian, do you want to take this? I would love to. So uh, March 13th, we'll have 60 minutes dedicated to study sessions so we can get a robust discussion going. We're hoping to then uh, have a public hearing on the 27th and then come back for a study session on April 10th and see where we are, you know, how comfortable the commission is with recommendations and we can have more conversations as necessary. And with that, we welcome any reactions. Questions, concerns, reactions, commissioners? 
Oh, Aparna beat you. Commissioner Aparna. <laughs> Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Ian and Odra. Um, I just want to start off by complimenting you on simplifying all of this. It's starting to shape up really nice. I like it because I think overcomplicating so many different types would be making it difficult for anybody to understand. So thank you for that. And um, I might, I'm trying to digest all this information and I'll probably send out an email with questions for the issue matrix. But I, I just wanted to tell you that um, there will be questions. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. I just have a quick question. Mike. Mike. No, I, I was going to do that. <laughs> there are a number of dependencies that you referred to earlier, like the use, the, the use tables. Will we have that in time for our next meeting on this, or is that, what's the timing of all those dependencies? Yeah, the use table will not be, the actual final proposed uh, amendment use tables will yeah. not be available until a couple of months from now. Oh, okay. So we make these decisions in absence of that. Correct. Okay. Commissioner Van Leiden. Okay, I really need help. When you said this is especially important, big picture, I'm not clear on what is a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. We were thinking that we could run down with some... Um, hopefully with graphics, a bunch of the, the components that demonstrate this. So like setbacks, floor area ratio, so maybe some of the design standard pieces, and just get all the definitions necessary to understand the pieces. So, I mean, what I'm having a hard time understanding is when we say a max of eight per lot, there are, you, you said something that helped me start to understand that the, the goal would be to break it down into smaller components. Yeah. But there are five acre lots that exist. Not many, but, and two acre lots. And I live on a 1.3 acre lot. So like what happens, that, that to me is a lot, but we're saying we can only put eight structures on it? That is a great question. So yes, there is a wide variety in the size of lots. And the lot is just that single undivided property. Um, the Specifically, it's not necessarily up to eight different structures on that lot, but up to eight dwelling units. So for example, if we had uh, a quadplex, right, that's four dwelling units, but it's still only one structure. And the to your point about the, the you know, large lots, RA5 is staying semi-rural, so that's staying its own zone. So the very biggest lots are probably covered under that. But R1 is being consolidated. So we do have large lots. And the notion is the structure maximum square footage will cap how much development could occur on that one lot. But if the owner of that one lot wanted to subdivide it into two, they still get the same amount of potential structure square footage on both of those lots, regardless of the size of the lot. Did that help? I'm sorry, it's hard without graphics. I think what makes this, sorry. 
I, I think the chart was confusing, um, and I think because the details that provide the clarification is missing. So, you know, like the, the size of the lot, the definition of a lot, I think if there is a reference to that, it just makes it easier to wrap my head around that. I, I thought it was confusing as well. Can do. So are you still interested in questions about the affordable housing component at this time or not, given that there's already, it sounds like a lot of conversations during that? Mm, probably high level direction questions we'd have an answer for, but most of the specifics we wouldn't be able to provide a meaningful response. Okay. So I, um, I had real questions about... Um, like I understand better how affordable housing works um, in a large development. I don't really understand how it works home by home, um, especially like if you had a lot that you were redeveloping and two of the units are affordable, how does that get tracked over time? What happens when it comes to sell? Are they allowed to rent at a non-affordable rate? Are people allowed to own a huge collection of these affordable units. Um, I, it just it raised a lot of questions about how this would actually work in real life, um, where a lot of people treat houses as investment properties. Um, it just seemed really easy to game. So I was just curious like where the city plans to go with that. And I'm assuming it's not something like a New York or San Francisco option where we would have subsidies or rent control or some of those formats because it didn't read like that. But I'd, I'd just love to see how, like what the real world model we, would be for that. We already have some affordable, I mean, in, in North Redmond, when that was developed, there were affordable housing, there was affordable, like duplexes built in North Redmond, North Redmond as part of that, that were affordable housing. Thank you. I think that's a great question. Um, because I think what it brings up is if you're talking about a single a single owner owning a single lot who wishes to add and you know increase the density in that lot, there from what I am understanding, there's not anything regulatorily speaking that would mandate that they provide affordable housing if they were to I think that the term that was used is doing a split sale, which is and I'm curious about the mechanics around that too. Um, so I think that that kind of gets to your question. Like, does it get tied to the deed somehow? Is it, like, right. what is the actual mechanism that would make this affordable? And is it just affordable at the time of sale or, like, at the time of construction? Or is there any lasting benefit there? And then how do you incentivize a property owner? I could just go on. I love it. You know, I'm always happy to talk affordable housing. Uh, the... The, the high-level response for the mechanism is covenants. And a covenant, importantly, lasts for the life of the project and it binds with the land itself. So, for example, when we have arch homeownership units, there's basically uh, defined in the covenant how much profit can be gained when one affordable household sells it to another, uh, income certification, all of these pieces... Um, so I'm thinking, what I'm hearing is maybe it would be useful to include one of those covenants as an example. And it also seems like it'd be useful to show examples of middle housing. So for example, in that, like I've been looking up 
I found examples locally of trusts where there's a trust that's built to create affordable housing, but there, in general, there is some governing body. So I don't know if Redmond is planning to be the governing body in this case, or if there'd be a regional group like ARCH or like who's enforcing this, I guess is my question. Yeah, it's typically a regional coalition for housing. Yeah, but we'll get more details on that as well. Okay, totally different topic. Um, so I live in the Grassland neighborhood, which is very close to Kirkland's Rose Hill neighborhood. Um, and there are a few years ahead of us in terms of like being willing to divide up um, some of the single family homes that were built like early, maybe 50 years ago. Uh, so I'm sort of watching this march towards me um, and seeing different ways that which isn't, it's not a bad thing. Like, I actually really appreciate the increased density, and I think it's like it's bringing us more public transportation options. There are good things coming out of it. But in terms of what it actually does to individual lots, it can get a little bit weird. Um, so I brought an example. I don't usually do this. But this is my lot. <laughs> the street is right here. So that 20 feet we're like 20 feet, three inches, something like that, in terms of the frontage. Mm -hmm. One of these is a side. I think these both are the back. If you were to subdivide this, you could put it like the 3,000 square foot lot. This could easily be three lots. You could run a driveway down one of the sides with a little extra driveway so that everyone gets their own access. I think that would be called an access corridor based on what I was reading. And then you could, they could potentially each have an ADU and they could still hit the FAR. So that would be six houses on one thing with a private access corridor and on a cul-de-sac that also has six other homes. So I'm just like, that doesn't totally make sense to me. It might, but then I also read in the code that we're trying to avoid more cul-de-sacs and more private access roads, sorry, access corridors. So it just, to me, there's an actual, I, I'm not the only one with a kite-shaped lot in Redmond. It's super common. <laughs> so when, exactly like my lot. Right. I mean, it's exactly like a lot of people's lots. And I just, I think that there's going to be some amount of market pressure alone where it's, if people have the option of redeveloping these, they might put up a 4,500 square foot house, which is huge, by the way, or they might put up a lot of littler houses. And what I'm seeing just up the hill in Kirkland is a lot of littler houses that don't have parking. They have one garage spot and no street parking. And then they also have um, ADUs, not very much space, all of that. So that to me seems like what it's steering towards. It's also possible that you could put up attached housing and then like the parking situation wasn't clear to me in that situation, um, but you'd still want to be getting like emergency vehicles in and out and all of that. So I just, I wanted more clarity on what this code would actually, like what the desired intention is for a lot this shape, because it will get, like a lot of these are going to get redeveloped and doing it in a way where it's like, this is what we think is actually a good outcome like a safe outcome, one that isn't going to generate conflict, one that's not going to knock down trees. It's going to, but it's like, there's ways that you can do it where there's conflict, 
conflict like baked into it or ways that it's like maybe a little bit more thoughtful and I'd like us to veer towards more thoughtful if we could. Can do, thank you. Thank you. I think you're raising some great points, Commissioner. And one of the things that I am, has been brought to my attention, the city of Seattle um, has done this very thing where instead of creating a subdivision where you usually, you have alley access, this is just an example, alley access, you have a garage and then you have the primary structure in the front part of the lot. Garages are being converted to detached accessory dwelling units and then they're condominiumizing those lots and you've, you've got parking for both and that's Seattle has different criteria of course but the idea of condominiumizing has created issues even for lenders and for people who want to sell because it doesn't um, so in the state of Washington and I think really across the country you ha there are certain procedures that need to be um, followed with respect to creating condominiums such as the declaration and a lot of these declarations haven't been finalized and then the individuals are trying to sell these um, second structures and so I think when we're talking about the mechanics or the split sales we you know it's like a question of how to do that and then to bring back the idea of incentivizing you're still talking about private property ownership so my question then becomes if the idea is to provoke you know provide affordable housing what might that incentive be? And I think covenants are a way to bind, but you have to find individual property owners that might be interested in becoming bound by covenants so that could impact their future resale value. Right, so all of this is tied together and raises some questions. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? So um, just in terms of language um, in this, I was really interested by the average minimum of 3,000 square feet instead of just a straight minimum. And I'd love more information about what the rationale was there. Can do, that's um, generally for, apply, applies to subdivisions that all of the small pieces need to average out to that. So you actually can have some a little bit smaller. Um, but the average needs to come to that. So for just individual lots redeveloping, it doesn't apply as much. But we will get you more information on that as well. And then one more. Um, so the de design standards piece um, seemed surprising to me to still see in it the way that it was. Um, I don't think... It made more sense to me maybe um, as a remnant from single family homes where you didn't want it just looked, looking completely cookie cutter. Here it is on the street. But like requesting that we have different roof lines and window mullions and um, chimneys and colors, all of that doesn't really make sense to me if we're moving towards attached units. Um, so just another really skeptical look at what we're going for in that I think would be great. Because I agree with not wanting everything to look just like punishingly the same. Um, but I, it seemed like a leftover piece from a different era to me. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. I think you were talking about the modulation part or is it just 
because um, talking with the development review uh, people, they were saying that if we don't put anything in there, it might just look completely out of place, like everything. So just a box. So that's why we right. put that in there as a provision. Uh, it's just the modulation. It doesn't have to be like you have to put uh, five elements. It's just like giving like a little guardrail so we don't end up with just boxes. Yeah, so I'm looking at the design criteria on page 93. And I actually, so maybe it was what you're talking about. Um, but it's a, I just, to me, that felt very out of place in terms of like, I'm not sure that I necessarily, if we want new development, we want infill, it's not going to look like it was constructed in 1975. And I'm actually totally okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> Anything else? We've got a bit of a, a gap between this meeting and the next one. So please let us know. Any emails, we're always a, a click away. Can I tell someone one more? Yeah, go for it. So one last one. Um, just a question about the height. Um, in the um, neighborhood residential. So it goes up to 38 feet now, which seems reasonable to me. But it there was wording that made it seem like roof decks and all of that would not be included in the height. So people could actually go above that to include railings and parapets and cupolas and all sorts of things. And I would rather, <laughs> to me, it seems like it would just be easier to say like, no, really don't go above 38 feet and leave it there. Not saying you can add additional stuff on top if it's the right stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Uh, Ribbon 2050 monthly update. Jeff. Good evening again. I want to use this update to highlight two things. One is that there's been a lot of activity in terms of actually moving things from draft to getting in front of the planning commission. And in fact, in the next couple of weeks, the last few elements of the comprehensive plan are going to be drafting will be finished and will be coming to the planning commission. So that's a real milestone. Second thing I want to highlight is some really interesting events that have either happened or are happening soon. So on, as you probably read in the memo, on February 17th, uh, we hosted with Eastside for All and the Disability Empowerment Center a community lunch focused on building an inclusive community. It was a really fantastic event. Um, Becky did the legwork for the city, so all credit to her. Um, but we got some great insight that's going to make its way into the community development and design element. Um, I don't think we've done anything like that before, so I think it's worth highlighting. And then another thing that I don't think we've done before, on March 14th, uh, we are going to have a workshop. So um, Becky Fry and Jenny Liebeck are going to co-lead this. We've invited people who are interested in building uh, mass timber developments in Redmond to kind of learn about what new opportunities there would be to do that in this community, including um, industry experts. So that's 
that's exciting that we'll be able to do that. And we'll be here at City Hall on March 14th at one o'clock. If you're free, come on by. We'd love to have you, but not more than three of you. <laughs> so, so let us know if you're planning to come so that we don't end up with a quorum. But we'd love to have three of you <laughs> if, you're, if you're free. Uh, right, any questions or about that? Go ahead. Thank you. Um, do you want to share what really stood out for you regarding the meeting on February? Was it seventeenth? I wasn't there on February seventeenth. Okay. So, I, so if I don't, if Becky's still online, I see her actually. So she might be able to, if she's still by her uh, computer, she can unmute herself and let you know. I'm still here. Yeah. Um, we actually had a, a fairly large crowd for our. Um, this particular stakeholder group about double what we normally do with our disability stakeholders. Um, we had a wide variety of um, folks represented, including uh, community members with disabilities, family members, uh, service providers. Uh, we had a lot of different types of comments. Um, so some very, very specific comments about how our process is giving something the built environment isn't looking like it should be. If we looked at a strict application of the ADA, how is that, you know, how is that working in the process and how we can improve our internal process improvements um, to also just very specific recommendations on um, the timing of the lights, the crossing crosswalks and different types of lighting and safety considerations. And um, they got some very, very, very specific feedback um, and some general feedback. So um, it was great. The, the feedback is going to go into a report that we're collecting right now. Um, Lauren and I are putting together a a report on all of the activities we've done about inclusive design, inclusive communities from last fall through uh, February. And uh, we're looking at it right now also for how all of that feedback could then translate into a policy or a court update or future projects. Because some of the feedback that we've been getting haven't necessarily been something that our team would implement, but that we could plug into other processes. So, uh, but the feedback that we got from um, that event in particular was again it was focused on community members with disabilities but the feedback we got was all types of disabilities like um the blind or wheelchairs or whatever i mean so it was great it was just a, a wide variety of of comments and some that we hadn't heard before so it was a really good event thank you becky really appreciate it thanks jeff Okay, staff and commissioner updates. Ian. Thank you. We have two big updates for you. The first is about our new planning commissioners. Council is going to hold a special meeting on March 19th. At that meeting on March 19th, it is expected that all three of the planning commission candidates will have completed their uh, interviews with the mayor and will be presented at that special council meeting uh, to be confirmed uh, for appointment, which means they would all be available to participate in the April 10th planning commission. That is vital because two of our planning commissioners are leaving at the end of March and we would have a skeleton crew. Um, so that's exciting. We're making progress there and we already have the nameplates made, so we're ready for them. 
The uh, second big update is that our upcoming meetings are, they're going to be long and they're going to be important. It's likely that they're going to be two, two and a half hours minimum. And we even have a public hearing on uh, March 27th. So the ask there to the commission is please double check your calendars and please make uh, staff aware of any expected absences. That's it for staff updates. Thank you. <clears throat> any commissioner updates? Okay. Then I look for a motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 We are adjourned.